Hi, we're Shannon and Jerry Arner. And our dog, Betty White. Your hosts of the Arner Adventures podcast. Could we have named it something more creative? Probably. But it's the name of our blog. It's our last name. We're on an adventure. Yada, yada, yada. After running our own business, working 24-7. And don't forget a mental breakdown in between. We made a lifestyle change and decided to make the most out of life. We sold our house, most of our belongings, downsized, and moved to the coast. We live life minimally, but fully. We live each day as an adventure. This show will help you learn how to live life more fully, with more intention, by experiencing more, and with less stuff. We'll talk about our own experiences, interview others who have much to share by creating a spark in our lives. Some days we'll share real life ongoings of what we're going through, and others will talk about our favorite flavor of waffle. Come join our adventure. It's, it's the, the Arner Adventures, Adventures Podcast. Hello. Hello. <laughs> I'm Shannon. Hello, hello. And I'm Jerry. <laughs> Betty White is snoring. In her PETA, right here beside us in the Arner Adventures Podcast Studio, we like to call it. We are back for episode 65 of the Arner Adventures Podcast, and we hope you're still sticking around after that really weird intro. Yeah, yeah, we didn't lose you. (laughs) We didn't lose you that. Uh, Today's guest, it's another one of those that you think it's going to go the one way. Mm -hmm. And man, when you think, we got a 180 spin for y'all. It's uh, a... but in a great way, of course. It's uh, um, it's another one of the Sparking Our Lives episodes with a multiple award-winning author, Michael Brent Collings. Yes. You know, we didn't talk about this on the episode. I didn't even tell Michael Brent about the last name situation. Oh, no, you didn't. That my maiden name is Collins. Yep. Very close to Collings. Very close, Yeah. Yeah. I wonder what nationality that is. I don't know. We'll have to look it up. We'll have to look it up. Well, this episode, this conversation was so interesting, to say the least. It was so raw. We just cannot say how much we appreciate it when our guests open up about the truth of their experiences. Accomplishment, really great things, and also the challenges, the really low points. Oh, yeah. And with that being said, the subject matter in this podcast conversation can be triggering to some. So we highly recommend that you have thoughts of harming yourself. Call or text 988 or text TALK, that's all caps, T-A-L-K, to 741741. And when you said two, it's T-O, right? Yeah. Uh (laughs) So you can text TALK Uh to T-O, 741741. And we take the topic of mental health seriously as if you're a listener here, you know that. But we also like to put it out in the open. And the more we talk about it, the less stigma there is. But please reach out for help if you feel that you're having your own mental health issues or have questions at all. Yeah, we'll have resources available in the show notes too. There were a lot of laughs though, you know, we don't want to to bring this, say that that was all that the conversation was. It definitely was not. There were a lot of laughs and this was just such an enriching conversation. We just want to make sure that we include that disclaimer. Oh yeah. So are you ready to go to the convo? I am ready to get to the convo. Let's do the convo. Well, we told you a little bit about today's guest, but now we're going to dig in a little bit deeper. Today's guest is Michael Brent Collings. Michael Brent used to be a partner in a law firm. Now he is an indie author, best known for horror, and voted one of the top 20 all-time greatest horror writers in a ranker poll of nearly nearly 20,000 readers. He has written bestsellers in a dozen genres, is the only author ever to be a finalist for the Bram Stoker Award multiple times, the Dragon Award multiple times, and the Roan Award. His work has been featured and reviewed on everything from Publishers Weekly to Screen Magazine to NPR. We have our candles lit, the lights are dim, and we are ready to dig into what makes Michael Brent Collings tick. Michael Brent, thank you for being here. You're welcome. I wish I had known there'd be low lighting. I wouldn't have, you know, put on all my makeup and my wig and stuff like that. <laughs> <laughs> oh, if our if our guests could see you, they would see that and we talked about this before the show that your lighting is impeccable. It is amazing. <laughs> I, I wish that we had better lighting over on our on our side. <laughs> but I really could ha- I really could use a wig. So you're ahead of me there. At least you both have your full heads of hair. Well, give us a a mental picture. Well, the the listeners, a mental picture, but where are you coming to us from? 
Um, I live in the metropolis of Idaho. I, <laughs> I, I, I grew up in, in California. Um, I lived there most of my formative years. And then I, I moved to South America for a couple of years and, and lived there for, for two years. And then I came back um, to Los Angeles. And after I got married, my wife and I realized that like our children had literally never played in the front yard without close supervision. Like, let's make sure the rapey guy walking past daily <laughs> doesn't have a chance to lift our children, you know? So we, we were like, oh, maybe this is the seventh circle of hell. And we, and we kind of, you know, started looking around for other places. And right about the same time, my, my in-laws moved to Idaho. And then my father um, walks in randomly one day with my mom and he goes, I'm taking early retirement and we're moving to Utah because there's good cheap housing there. And I'm like, selfishly, my first thought isn't, dad, that's great. Or, oh no, or anything like that. I was just like, ah, crap. I don't want to have to travel to two places for the rest of my life every Christmas. <laughs> so I called my in-laws who are all realtors and I'm like, you have two hours to sell my parents something or I'm never seeing you again, you know? And so they sold my, my, uh, my mom and dad a house and we kind of trailed along a couple of years later. <laughs> I don't know why I wasn't expecting you to say Idaho. I, but I, I, did, I did not know that, but Idaho's like the Spanish inquisition. Nobody expects Idaho. <laughs> the first question I have is when you were in California, did you like always have dreams that you were going to be a lawyer? Like, was that the plan? Or did you think, <laughs> did you think, well, that's kind of what I'm supposed to do? Or no, no, I don't think, I don't think anybody look, if somebody's like, ah, I just, I dream of being a lawyer someday. You should probably either get that person help or I, no matter what, stop being their friends because they're either crazy or they're like that kind of person that argues for fun over Scrabble rules and things like that. Like somebody's just generally awful. So I, I didn't want to be a lawyer when I grew up. I always enjoyed writing and I, and I enjoyed creativity. But the one thing I really wanted was I wanted to be a family man. Like, you know, I, I come from a family of love and, and I always wanted that. I knew I liked women, you know, in a generalized kind of a sense. But, you know, as I, as I got older, I knew I wanted to have a family and a wife and kids. And the, and the thing that I wanted second most was not to be that guy bringing women over to my mom's basement and being like any day, baby, I'm going to make it. I swear, you know, and like 40 <laughs> years old with my sad rock band, that's never going anywhere. So I, you know, I became a lawyer because I was reasonably good with words and, and I had been telling stories my whole life. So I was a good liar and, and, and I just kind of did that to pay the bills. So, so no, it was, it was never like me dreaming, sitting wishing upon a star someday i hope i can be a soulless <laughs> bottom feeder that charges too much for too little it was just it was a, a way of paying the bills well you know a lot sometimes it's that your dad was one and then your dad's dad was one and it's like it's expected that that's what you're supposed to do so yeah, um yeah I'm always, not me yeah. okay <laughs> okay got it at what point are you like okay, I, I can't do this. I really want to be a writer. And, and you said you always wrote, but that's a big change. And that's also a big investment in saying, mm -hmm. I'm going to go this route. So was it a part-time thing, you know, when something happened or was it just sort of a transition? Like, how did that come to be? So I tell people I became a full-time writer because I failed to successfully avoid being a full-time writer. <laughs> like, um, like I say, I'm a risk averse person and I really never wanted to have that kind of creative lifestyle. I was, I did dream, I didn't dream of being a lawyer, but I dreamed of like having a 401k and a retirement plan and, you know, dental benefits and stuff like that. And, um, what happened was I, I had this job and it was at a respected Los Angeles law firm. It was kind of a boutique firm. It was a very specialized area. And, um, and I went along there fine and I became a partner and a, you know, an equity partner and I owned part of the firm and all that stuff. And then my wife got sick. She had, um, this really severe problem with her back. Um, and it sounds like, oh, she had back problems, but I mean, like saying she had back problems is sort of like, you know, comparing cancer to a hangnail. She had really serious problems. Mm. And so I kind of became a part-time lawyer. I mean, I literally went from working law job hours, which are horrendous, to be in there like 20 hours a week. And the rest of the time I'm taking care of my wife. Um, and I'd always written on the side, you know, so I would come home and I'd, I'd play with my family and I'd work my long hours or whatever. And then I'd write at night after my wife went to bed. She's always been an early sleep person. And so I'd write from 10 p.m. until one or two in the morning. And then I'd get up and do the whole thing again. Um, 
and and that kind of started to gain some traction but i still wasn't thinking i'm going to be a writer when i grow up i was still like i was kind of going maybe i'll make some extra money on the side and we can put a down payment on a house someday because california costs so much you know yeah um and so one day after this has been going on for a while my wife's been sick and i had some health problems that reared at the same time which was just terrible timing so the law partners called me in and very politely but firmly invited me to divest myself of my partnership shares um you know and you can fight that sort of thing because i was part owner but it's like what's that going to do so you know we shook hands and i left and and it was terrible timing because my wife and kids had actually come to visit me that day so they're waiting in like the library across the street i walk over and i'm like we will go have lunch and then i guess we'll leave earlier than planned you know like with my box of stuff in my hand it was oh a really, <laughs> really <laughs> crappy moment it was terrible and, um, timing oh it was yeah it was awful everything about it was awful and my wife's still sick you know she was having one of her good days which is why she could come and visit me at the office and and um and i tried to be a lawyer still i wanted a grown-up job and all that good stuff but it was right at the time there's always ups and downs in every industry. And this was a, oh my gosh, we have too many lawyers in California. So I couldn't get a job to save my life. And, and um, luckily at that same time, I had just sold a movie to a big studio. So we, you know, we had that going for us. I had just um, heard about this Kindle thing, you know, cause it was kind of new back then. And I put one of my books on it and it got some traction. So I started kind of making a little bit of money and just enough to eke our way through survival for a long time um and it, and it just gradually grew and and you know even to this day it's like people go oh don't you love the writing life and i go i love a lot about it i'm very blessed um but it's stressful i have the dental you know i i, I do i have the same dental insurance as an above average crack whore and my job <laughs> security is whatever my last royalty check was you know so there's always yeah. kind of you know, that, that life is rough on people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but that being said, I've made a life of it. And with the support and love of my family and my, my freaking angel of a wife and my kids, you know, we've managed to, to turn it into something fairly successful. So we're really grateful for that and very blessed, but it wasn't like, I wasn't that guy who was just going to be a writer, no matter what, I really had no desire for that lifestyle. That wasn't in the cards as far as I was concerned. <laughs> wow. Well, first of all, how is your wife? She's doing much better. She had, um, long story, very short, she had a terrible quack of a doctor who was more interested in hooking her on pain meds than in fixing her. So we finally oh, got yeah. away from him and got to a doctor who was like, oh, I could have fixed this years ago kind of thing. And, uh -huh. and she had a surgery that was a major surgery and it took a year to recover from. But after that, she's been great. She's in much better shape than I am now. <laughs> <laughs> that leads us to you being um, an indie author. And then these mm -hmm. get, you know, picked up and you start getting traction. It sounds like you were a screenwriter for that film. Is that correct? Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. So it sounds like things are going pretty well. And like you said, uh, and we can relate to that. It's like people think you're an entrepreneur. You, you, you're your own boss. It must be the dream. Well, yeah, but you're, you're, you're everything. I mean, you know, yeah. you're every, all the, all the titles, all the roles in a business and you're working all the time. And in some ways it's like, you do like it and it's yours, but it's also you, it's like, if you don't love your job and you work all the time, you lead to burnout. And if you love your job and you work all the time, it's still the same result at the end, yeah. you know, yeah. that sort of brought you to, I'm going to be an indie author. I'm going to, and then eventually have my own publishing company like how did that come to fruition instead of going and seeking an agent and going and doing that route well so when i when i started all this you know like i say kindle was a brand new thing i mean literally you could say hey do you know what kindle is and nine out of ten people would have no idea and this huh. is when i'm in los angeles which is where people are very tech savvy and into the, that kind of lifestyle um so there it wasn't that i was trying to be an indie in fact yeah, i had been writing i had these screenplays and like i say just fortuitously one of them got purchased by this company and it gave us a good chunk of money um i sold another one right around the same time they gave us some more um but i'd, I'd never like thought of myself as a screenwriter as much as like i write stories and i write books and i and i literally sent my first book to every single publisher manager and literary agent in north america who who handled that stuff i have two four inch binders that are just single sheet pages of rejections yeah um and some of them were nice they were like oh we really liked it but it's not quite right and some of us were like could you go back in time and strangle yourself in the crib so nobody ever reads this again so <laughs> oh you know God. it was like this wide response spectrum wow. um, huh. 
and I put it onto Kindle because a friend told me about it and I was like, it won't hurt anybody, you know? Um, and the first month I, I was just astounded. I sold a, six whole copies or something like that. All of them were probably to my mom. I'm pretty sure she opened a bunch of Amazon accounts and, and, um, and then I kind of forgot about it because I was still a lawyer at this point. I'm still working and I'm dealing with my wife's health issues and I had some health issues that had started to rear their head. Um, and I didn't even know anything was going on with it until about six months later, I had a friend who emailed me and was like, please tell Amazon to stop telling me about your book. I don't want it. You know, and I was Florida. I had no idea what he was talking about. Um, it turned out it was the number one best-selling science fiction and number one best-selling uh, horror title. And it was like number two on the thriller chart. It was, it was really doing good. Um, wow. and that was awesome. But again, it was like a lot of this, I didn't sit there and go like, Oh, I want to be my own boss. I want to be independent. I want to yeah. have all the, it just kind of happened that way. This episode is brought to you by Southern Oak Artisan. Southern Oak Artisan makes 100% natural soy candles that are not only aesthetically pleasing, but are safe to breathe since they are made with non-toxic ingredients and they're not overwhelming like other candles you may be used to. Between morning brew, lemon bake, lavender, there's just so many scents to choose from. Southern Oak Artisan 100% natural soy candles are handmade in our home state here in North Carolina. But lucky you. They ship all over the U.S. Yes, lucky indeed. Head over to arneradventures.com slash Southern Oak Artisan, where you can grab our discount code and link to save on your soy candle purchase. That's arneradventures.com slash Southern Oak Artisan. It's also in the show notes. And now back to the show. And one of the things I tell people, if you're going to be in this line of work, is you have to be flexible and accommodating to opportunity. So you know, I took the opportunity that came that like, there were some people that like my books, and I'd like to cater to that and maybe get some more of that audience and, and try and grow that. But at the same time, there's indies out there who are just so hostile to anything that reeks of traditional publishing, or, you know, I'm not selling my soul to the man. And I'm like, yeah. my soul is highly for sale. It's just the <laughs> man has to offer me enough money. for. Like I'm actually in a, in a, in a very long term negotiation right now with a fairly large publishing company. Um, because I'm happy to turn over some of that work. It's just, right. it has to, they have to be able to pay me more than I'm going to pay myself. And at this point, most of them can't kind of guarantee that, you know? Yeah. Um, so I'm, I'm perfectly willing to work for somebody else because like you said, people think, oh, you're living the dream. You're your own boss. I'm like, I have a million bosses. All my readers are my bosses. It's a little more dispersed, but I'm still answering to tons of people every single day. Yeah. Um, Hanging out your own shingle just means you switch to your boss as your client or your boss as your reader or your audience, if you know, for your podcast yeah. or whatever it is. You're yeah. not just sitting there being like, I'm going to make myself happy today. That's the best way to go out of business. <laughs> you know, people who say that, they're like, I follow my muse wherever I go. I'm like, well, you're a sociopathic homeless person then because that's not how you stand business. Your big awards are in, in horror and, you know, you're one of the great horror writers. So I guess that question is, what makes you want to go into horror writing? So it's a combination of things. One, I, I like, I think it was Ray Bradbury. Someone said something to the effect, you're such a good writer. Why do you waste time on horror? And his response was like, why do you think I have a choice? You know, um, I think there's some people that, that just kind of gravitate to it, you know, that find um, it to outsiders, to people who don't like horror. And I have nothing against them. You know, variety is the spice of life. It would be terrible if everybody was just like me. Um, but people who don't like horror, I find they tend to have kind of a, a warped perspective on it. And when I drill into it, what they really don't like is horror movie posters. Like they've never actually experienced a wide enough variety of horror to say if they like it or not. They just know mm -hmm. I don't like the saw posters. They make me feel icky. And plus there's too many boobs. And I'm like, that's, you know, horror isn't that that's, that's a really kind of a myopic vision of what it is. Um, so my father, he, um, was an educator. He was a professor at a major university and he fell in love with horror and not in sort of a generalized way, but he was one of the first people out there saying this stuff is literature. It's not just schlocky stuff. When I went to school, you could literally get sent to the counselor's office for holding a Stephen King book. They just assumed something was dreadfully wrong with you. Yep. Um, and so my father is out there, one of the first people who was saying, this is legitimate literature. It has literary value. We should appreciate it and study it. He wrote the first book length um, scholarly analysis of Stephen King. 
So I grew up with typing and screaming in the next room. It was just sort of home base. You know, my dad would be watching a Stephen King movie or watching a John Carpenter movie. I remember um, he had this guy over. He's like, I saw this kid's student film. It was really good. I think this guy's going to go places. And so this guy's, you know, just some student who had made a student film and we're eating dinner. And and my dad's like, be really nice to Frank Darabont. I really think he's going places. And for people who don't know who that is, he's the guy who directed like The Green Mile, The Shawshank Redemption, yeah. The Truman Show, all of these major Stephen King things. Um, so that was just kind of the world I grew up in. I remember my parents, you know, tucking us in bed and being nice to the city. We're going to Dean Koontz's housewarming party and what? we won't be back late because oh my, my dad gosh. had done so much work in that world. It just kind of was everywhere. So, you know, when I started writing, it wasn't like, oh, I, I love ghastly stuff. People are always kind of surprised. They're like, oh, you write horror. You seem so nice. Like we're expecting you to make a wallet out of our faces halfway through the interview. And I'm just like a normal guy, but I like, ghost stories and i like spooky things and yeah. also they afford you a wider latitude for examining metaphysical questions i mean like if you're writing a science fiction book you really can't talk about the afterlife you're constrained to some extent by reality whereas in horror you're like hey let's talk about a situation where the devil exists and mm -hmm. like a priest is going to have to save the day because god also exists let's talk about that uh -huh. and it's a really cool way to to discuss big things that are kind of verboten in a lot of other uh, milieu I've never been as fearful as reading a horror book. And I mm -hmm. love that. Like I love yeah. being pushed. Like, I don't know why, maybe there, there's an issue <laughs> with me, but because <laughs> it's also like terrifying and I don't like, I don't want this to happen, you know, mm -hmm. but I, the, the books are, um, I just think, and maybe it's because you use your own imagination and create this horror, but it's into the writing, but it's um, Stephen King can terrify me to no end. Right. Um, so, but, but the movies, yes, are scary, but the books are scarier to me. <laughs> um, what do you think? I've never read any horror at all. I'm one of those people. Well, I like the posters actually, but I <laughs> <laughs> and I tend to watch from time to time we get on little kicks, maybe yeah. with some horror stuff. And, and yes, I, I do enjoy that. And, uh, but reading horror, no, I've just never done it. And, you know, I'm of that age too, where you always had that friend or that roommate who had that row of Stephen King books on their shelf, you know, and uh, right. I thought I ought to pick one of those out one day. And then <laughs> they'd make the movie out of it. And Mom and my uncle um, are big Stephen King fans. So yeah, we had that bookshelf. Yeah, and yeah. so I remember, yeah. I remember coming to the age where she finally was like, okay, maybe you can read, Thinner. Thinner was the first book I ever read of him. And so I was, and it was still terrifying. It was just terrifying. Um, but I had to become an age where she would say, okay, you can take a book from the Stephen King shelf. Right. Uh, that's, that also leads me to the question of, you know, is there a certain mindset you have to be in to write it? Whereas a different genre or is your process still the same across the board? The process in general terms is pretty similar. I mean, because again, like I'm a commercial writer, I'm not sitting there being an artiste and, you know, waxing rhapsodic about a doodappled pedal on the outside of my, you know, my, my window in winter and how sad everything is. Like I'm trying to write stuff that's going to sell and that my fans will like, and that'll get made into a movie. Um, Cause that's still where the big money is. You know, as many yeah. people as have read Stephen King, you can pick any of his movies and just that movie probably has had more viewers than all of his books combined because yeah. that's the world we live in. Uh, the process is always like, I want to write something that's, that's interesting. That's, that's people say never been done before, but that's kind of impossible. Like if you're going to write something that's never been done before or tell a story, no one's ever told, probably you're mostly going to see confusion and distaste because we like certain things. We like a three act structure. We like boy meets girl, boy loses girl, boy gets girl. Like there's things that we just understand. And so I find those things that people understand and I try and put an interesting new spin on them or a new twist that hasn't been done that way before. And so whether I'm writing a, a scary story or a kid's book, like right now I'm, I'm working on a middle grade adventure. Um, and whether I do a middle grade adventure or an adult horror novel, it's going to start with me saying like, you know, what do I want to write? What's something the market's looking for? Um, I kind of go through this checklist of basic ideas. 
um they have to have a cool movie poster that's something i always sit and think is like what would the movie poster look like because ah. we live in a world that um people want to grab things quickly they want to understand them at least on some level quickly and so if like i have a good movie poster in my head before i start writing i know it's going to be an accessible idea you know you want something high concept that you can pitch it and people will go oh i would definitely buy that book or i definitely see that movie and so no matter what i'm going to kind of run through that list and then and I'll even tell a lot of the same things, whether I'm talking about a kid's book or an adult book. You know, um, I wrote a series called um, Saga of Billy Jones. Sorry, I've written 50 books. They bleed together. <laughs> and um, and like the first line of the book is is like Billy Jones was only 14 the first time he died. And by the end, the last book, everybody in the world dies, like literally everybody's wiped out and it's really scary. Um, and so, but it's still for kids. And the difference is not so much subject matter as just the way you talk about it. You know, uh, kids have lived yeah. through the Holocaust. Kids are very, very strong and you don't want to hurt kids. You don't, you can carefully lead them through difficult, difficult concepts. That's, that's one of our roles as adults is to teach our kids how to handle trauma. When you have this poster in your head or the, or the cover of the book, are you designing the covers as well? Are you outsourcing that and telling them your ideas or literally is everything? Are you outsourcing That's literally anything? everything? Everything wow. is me. Like, you know, the, your audience can't see it obviously, but like I have a, a virtual screen in my background and it's a bunch of covers and I do all the covers myself and, um, yeah, I do everything. And that's, that's one of the things that is unique about me as far as like, um, you know, and it, Side note, anyone thinking about going into creative stuff, it's hard because we're the weirdest mix of narcissism and cripplingly low self-esteem. Like on one hand, we're, we're, we all artistic types are like, my work will change the world. I'm going to tell a story. I'm going to paint a picture and the universe will shift and be better. You know, and then someone goes, I really like that. And your first impulse is to kind of look around and be like, are you talking to me? Because we don't believe it, you know, in our hearts. Um, and so it's kind of tough to learn how to talk about yourself in a factual way without downplaying yourself, you know, or, or we, we're kind of taught to be modest and humble and say, well, it's nothing, you know, and, and an artistic type has to be out there and be like, let me tell you what kind of a badass I am. So that you'll buy my stuff. Um, and so, yeah. yeah, I do all this stuff and, and I love doing it. It's a, it's hard doing it all and you can't approach it and just be like well i guess i'll pick up marketing it's thursday you know it's a you have to take time learning these right <laughs> I'm curious from a pro productivity standpoint do you batch work days or how do you stay efficient and productive in all of those roles i mean it's writing publishing marketing branding every podcast i mean how do you stay on top of it all and do it well one of the biggest things is to have a support group and and by that i don't mean like a writer's group or an artist group i don't know if there's like painting groups that you sit and critique each other because that stuff is just more often than it's just self-congratulatory people who are sitting around saying i'm going to say something nice about you now you better say something nice about me so i'm not talking about that but i'm talking about your core supporters um, and in this, I mean, my wife more than anybody, um, this poor woman, she married this stable lawyer and three years and I'm like, Hey, remember how I like to write stories. That's actually a thing, you know? And, um, and she kind of ended up with this guy who, who is this creative type with all these ups and downs and this total lack of anything resembling security. Um, but through it all, she stuck by me and she can tell, uh, if I'm having a rough, terrible day she'll say you've worked 45 hours it's tuesday maybe mm. go see a movie maybe take a minute you know so part of it is just her kind of monitoring and i have severe mental health disorders um mm. i have major depressive disorder suicidal tendencies and psychotic breaks and so she's constantly having to watch that as well just to make sure that i'm not going to go like poke holes in my neck for fun or something terrible yeah um, and so that's the first thing is really like, if you want to succeed in, in this kind of business where it's essentially you bring the structure, no one's going to impose it. You have to have people who support you. And by support you, it's not just patting you and saying you're doing great, but, but telling you like, Hey, you're sucking today. You need to get out of bed and do a better job because the family relies on this. This episode is brought to you by Dan and Dan. If you're a longtime listener, you've probably heard us tell you before that about two to three CBD brands 
reach out to us every week. It wasn't until we started digging into the research that we learned CBD isn't always CBD and they're not all the same. Danadan Hempworks makes organic hemp flower infusions. Danadan's products support our daily routine by helping to manage daily stress, promote healthy sleep, provide caffeine-free energy, and recover from activity-related stiffness and soreness. They also have CBD hemp flower infusion specifically designed for pets, which is great for Betty White. She uses it every day. Head over to ArnerVentures.com slash Danadan hyphen hempworks to grab our amazing discount code and link. That's ArnerVentures.com slash Danadan dash or hyphen hempworks. It's also in the show notes. Now back to the show. Um, mm-hmm. who's going to love you enough to encourage you to be better and, and let yeah. you know when you're not doing what you should or as well as you could. Like every book I write, I read to my wife and she's my final quality control because if you, she'll be doing laundry and if, and if she's just into her laundry or the housework she's doing, whatever it is, I'm like, I'm failing because I'm not captivating her. And she's fine with that. She's like, no, I got stuff to do. It's your job to pull me out of it, man. Um, or she'll stop and go, I did not understand that. That was so unclear. I'm sure you thought it was genius, but it sounded like gibberish to me. (laughs) She's honest and she's telling me this needs to improve. And sometimes the improvement is just that sentence didn't flow. And sometimes the improvement is Michael Brent, you're in serious danger of emotional harm. So you need to pause what you're doing and, and get out into the real world and take a walk or go to the gym or you know, even I'm the only man in the world whose wife is like, you should play some video games, you know, <laughs> just like she's, she's so nice that way. Um, you really need people who are there willing to, you know, prop you up. It's no matter how good you are at how many things you're going to have bad days and terrible days and days you don't believe in yourself. And, and I have those more than one more often than most, just as a, a byproduct of my mental health problems. Mm-hmm. Um, I'd be dead in a ditch without her. So But to some extent, I think we all need that. We all need those people in our corner who are not just our cheerleaders, but our actual supporters. You know, they're going to hold us up on days when we're down and on days where we think we're down, but we're really not. They're the ones who are willing to kick us a little and be like, stop complaining, get up, go to work. Yeah, I appreciate you opening up about that. I think that, you know, we've talked about this on here before. And I can totally relate to what you're saying. Um, you know, we 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 both have um, some mental health things going on, and and in the past, when like you were talking about working and and you can't sometimes you don't recognize that something is is going on or that you're starting to tank. And yeah. I think the when you talked about your support and having people around you. You do not. Yes, you want someone encouraging and you want someone who is going to believe in you, but you also want someone who's real. And I know that there's a handful, a a small handful of people in my life that would that that are like that. And Jerry's one of them. But I, I know that like in the past when I have been really, really bad and Jerry would say, "Okay, like, I I know that you. You uh, believe in this and that this is, you know, this is not success. Like keep pushing mm-hmm. and, and that and you, now you need help. And there there are, I think, times that we we both are is reciprocating that you can say, OK, yeah. hey, do you realize that this is going on? And sometimes you do. And I don't know if you do, but sometimes I do. I know that something is off, but sometimes mm-hmm. I'm not able to recognize how how bad it's getting. I'm better with it now, like staying ahead of things. Uh, mm-hmm. I think when I, when you're younger, you just think, oh, everybody's like this or everybody's <laughs> like this way. Yeah. Well, at least I'll. <laughs> totally. <laughs> <laughs> I think when you're young, you choose friends that are as wacky as you too. So it's like, um, yeah. But uh, now I think we're, we're both very sensitive to, uh, uh, okay, I'm thinking this. What am I feeling? What am I, you know, interrelating your thoughts to your feelings and, uh, staying ahead of, am I, am I getting in a spiral funk kind of thing here? Or, you know? Yeah. 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 But I think it's very important to have that support of someone who's going to keep it real and not keep yeah. going. You're doing such a great job. You're just, you oh know, my gosh. you know, yeah. The old school methods of, uh, walk it off or you're just yeah. hungry. Yeah. <laughs> and, and look, there's some truth to that. Like that's one of the struggles with anybody who has 
actually got a serious mental health problem is like, at what point do I grin and bear it? You know, because you can't use it as a crutch. I mean, if I was just like, I, every time I feel low or down or depressed, I let myself not work. I would never work. That's my illness does yeah. not permit me to have a life that's full of smiles and sunshine. And so that's just, you know, knowing where that line is, that's where you do need help as well from someone else. So I kind of try and push through it no matter what. And my wife is often the one who's like, no, you're messed up today. You need to stop doing this because, A, you're not doing anything good anyways. You know, like your work is probably terrible today. And B, you're hurting yourself. So she's useful in that sense as being an outside objective observer. You know, if, if we have a mental health issue, the problem is your brain is in charge of telling you whether you're fine or not. And so yeah. if your brain is yeah. the defective thing, um, that's a real issue. That said, like, yeah, anyone who goes, I, I've had people say, well, you know, if you had a more positive attitude or if you just smiled more or this or that, and I'm like, you go into a freaking cancer ward and you tell those people to smile more. And yeah. I would like to see you do that. It's just, I don't have a bone jetting out of my arm, you know, from a compound fracture. So it's harder to tell, yes. but there's actually chemical yeah. stuff going on that has just as much validity and in fact more so in some ways because you know the person who is sitting there on with their bone in a sling if at least everything's right and their dopamine is levels are correct they can at least go well this sucks but i can still have a good day i'll put a balloon over it and go swimming anyways whereas yeah. i can be perfectly fine and be like no the world is ending and the only logical response is i'm gonna go find a razor look at someone and say, well, if you just had more smiles, you'd feel better, um, shows a pretty radical misunderstanding. And that's not to say that that person's a bad person or anything like that. I don't want to imply that. But definitely, if you are suffering from mental health problems, you want to note that person and say, this is somebody I can't turn to on, a, on, a, on any kind of an important level because they fundamentally misunderstand the reality that I'm going through. That's yes. not a bad thing. It's just a reality, a reality thing. They don't have the same life experiences that permit them to understand what's really happening here. You know, any more than I would understand what it's like to photosynthesize. I'm just not built that way. So if my <laughs> plant is like, I'm just not photosynthesizing today, I'd be like, well, if you got more sun, you know, I'm not a good plant coach, you know, and there's people out there who aren't good plant coaches for us. Either. <laughs> and thank you for, for talking about it. I think that the more we talk about it, the, the the less people are going to uh, be ignorant about the fact mm -hmm. that, you know, yes, this mental health issue is still a fucking health issue. And <laughs> it, totally. it is as important, if not more, than someone who has broken bones and scrapes and burns. It's still a health issue. And yeah. that drives me crazy to no end. So I, I do think that the stigma will lessen if more people talk about it. And so, yeah, well, I mean, we think we make good strides on it too, compared to what things were 20, 30 years ago. For and, sure. Uh, yeah, yeah for without sure. a doubt. I mean, I still think about every couple of days happened a month or so ago, but like that, that DJ who was for the Ellen show who, and you know, uh, yeah, yeah and then you, you just, you think, and then here's a, a, a case of somebody who you always got the outer image of the, that sort of facade well probably how he had to be for tv yeah and you know it was a smiling happy guy and then you go that's one of those it's just such a head scratcher for me and i it kind of keeps me up at night i remember when that happened because that affected my wife because she immediately i've had a really rough year um and we have good ups and downs mentally but like you know we had to cut a uh family vacation short. Cause I was seeing my kids floating face down in the river. I was literally seeing my dead kids. They, it wasn't really happening, but I was like, I can't be here oh. because I keep seeing my dead kids and that's not oh. a great vacation experience. So like, that's kind of like the level that I've been functioning at a lot. And so when that happened, she was sending me all these emails about it because she's like, this is you, you know, I show up and I'm perky and I'm fun or I'll go to a comic con and I'll smile and shake hands. And everyone assumes I've even been on, on podcasts where I talk about my mental health. And then in the comments, people diagnose me. They're like, he's a liar. He's actually a megalomaniac narcissist, all this stuff, because obviously he's not depressed. The one thing this guy isn't is depressed. <laughs> Look huh. at how he's presenting. He's so over the top and this, you know, and I'm like, well, first of all, you're, an incredible medical professional to be able to diagnose me on a six second YouTube. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but, 
regardless, like, you know, nobody sees me after the comic con when I go home and I can't function for two days. Literally, yeah. like I have a closet with a bed in it and I go in my closet and I stay there for most of two days because I'm so overwhelmed and so frustrated with all the mistakes that I made and all the errors that, you know, all the people that I destroyed. And, you know, none of this is real, but this is what's happening in my head. If I don't have a chance to shake hands with a fan because, you know, I have to go to another panel or something that's going to spiral in my head into like, and that guy probably killed himself and it's on my hands, you know? Yeah. And, and, but I don't bring that to the comic con. I take it away from the comic con. And so yeah. people yeah. just assume like, Oh, when he says it's bad, it's probably not that bad because I'm really carefully keeping that crap away from here. I don't want other yeah. people, you know, I tell my kids like, here's reality is like, I will tell people if I have diarrhea because it's just, a physical reality, but I try not to crap my pants in front of other folks at the same time. And so, you know, it's really hard to tell if somebody's somebody's walking around in their business suit being like, I have terrible diarrhea today. And you're like, do you really though? Because you're dressed really nice and you're out with us. So, you know, it's not until they have a horrible, horrible accident right in front of you where you're like, I think Ray's really sick, you know, for some reason. <laughs> we don't believe the person telling us because they're making effort to not to not poop yeah. their pants in front of us. Yeah. And unless you're, you know, crying in the corner, weeping, huddled in a fetal position, you probably don't have depression. And yeah. I'm like, well, I don't right now for five minutes. But as soon as we get off this little phone call, I'm going to go cry yeah. a lot. I just don't invite you to that part. Right. And if you're an, an introvert by nature, you tend to push it all in. And yeah. You know, whatever's bothering you. Whereas an extrovert might shout out enough things bothering them that somebody will help them out. <laughs> I have taught myself to be like this. I literally went to my mom when I was a kid um, because I was like, you know, I'm getting beat up a lot. Girls won't talk to me. You're the friendliest, nicest person I know. How do you do that? And she gave me a list of things. She's like, smile at the person, say their name. And I just memorized this list of stuff and I did it often enough. I can fake it. But extroverts, they come to something like this, and this is what they live for is these interactions. And an introvert comes to something like this, and this is something I have pumped myself up for to yeah. handle. And then afterwards, I'll have to die yeah. a little bit inside. Yeah. But yeah. whether you're an introvert or an extrovert, we all need that social interaction. There's people yeah. who are social hummingbirds, and they need little bits of constantly you know, and then there's people like me, introverts or social anacondas. Like we come out of hiding once, have a big meal every six months and don't want to talk <laughs> to anybody again. Um, but we still have to have that or else we die. You know, that's a form yeah. of nourishment. And that's a real danger. And in these times where we're so isolated and separated, you know, as bad as separated as we were because of our phones and social media, putting this, you know, piece of glass between us and the world and then COVID happened and it's so much worse. So yeah, that's just so critical. Like, you know, I love that you mentioned that, Jerry. We do need to be able to talk about it and and we need to be able to interact with people. And if you're the worst introvert in the world, and I'm one of those, the, the biggest mistake you can make is say, I'm going to be a hermit and not interact with anybody ever because we have to have that interaction. Yeah. We have to have that to keep us human, to keep us sympathetic, to keep us empathetic and to keep us functioning. You know, no matter who you are, if you go too long without some form of human interaction, you're just going to wither on the vine and die. I was living in South America. I, I was a missionary is why I was there. And I had a companion who a missionary companion who was very quiet and very shy. And we would get out and we talked to people all day. And, and he came back one day and said, oh, you know, callings. I wish I was like you. I wish I could get out and talk to people. And I said, well, first of all, you know, like we've talked about, it's really hard for me. So I'm not just doing it naturally. So. First of all, you can learn to do that to some extent. Maybe you won't be the life of the party, but you can certainly, we can all improve. And then I, I looked at him and I said, and Terrell, I got to tell you, you're going to have more people at your funeral than I will. Because as cool as it is for people to hear a joke or somebody who can make them laugh, you know, the people that we need is someone who's going to listen to us. And you're just such a good listener. And you're, and I can tell when you listen to, to me, my friend, that you are my friend and you care about me. And so, yeah, cool. I can get out there and tell a joke in several different languages. And that's awesome. That's a legit skill. But just being able to sit there and want to connect with my humanity, which is what you do every day, that's that's inestimably valuable at a party, at the office, at home. Your skill is portable to any situation, you know.
This episode is brought to you by Sugarwish. Sugarwish is our gift go-to. What better gift is there than a consumable? And by consumable, we mean that Sugarwish allows you to give someone candy, coffee, wine, cookies, cotton candy, popcorn, savory snacks. And don't forget doggy treats for your doggy gifts. The best part is that Sugarwish is big on saving us time. You just order on their website. They send the gift via email or text to the recipient and arrives whenever you want. Sugarwish does not waste my time, but actually saves me time. Yes, Please use code Betty White. That's all caps, one word, Betty White, to save $7 off of your gift to someone. Or you can head over to arneradventures.com slash sugarwish to grab the code and link there. Yep, that's arneradventures.com slash sugarwish. It's also in the show notes. Now back to the show. But the wallflower spends like an hour absorbing everything. When the, till they come up with the most interesting observation of the evening, yeah, and eventually yeah. that comes out, it's like, whoa, that's yeah, well, you know, yeah, yeah, yeah everybody's happy to. I don't know, I've never ever once in my life been in a situation where the wallflower stands up and says something, and they're like, whoa, listen, if you didn't talk in the first 40 minutes of the party, we don't want to hear from you, you know, like <laughs> that's just, yeah, that's not how life works. Or, yeah. oh, I'm sorry, you missed your chance. I, you know, maybe there's somebody out there who says that, but that's kind of probably an a-hole anyways. That's a social yeah. problem that person has. I guess we should get to your fast five questions. Fast five questions. Ooh. Yes. Number one, Adam's family or Munsters? Oh, Adam's family. Munsters is so dumb. <laughs> I'm sorry. I can't even pretend to be cool about that. If you're if you're answering otherwise, you are a bad person. Yeah, no, I, I, I'm not on the family all the way. What are you? Uh, what are you gonna say now that he said that? <laughs> <laughs> I thought. I mean, in a, you know, and I haven't watched any of them in so many years. I always felt like there was a lot, so many parallels, kind of like with Bewitched and I Dream a Genie, where. There was everything just yeah. sort of paralleled with those two shows, but um, totally. Adam's family has definitely gotten the they've got the whole movie thing going on, and uh, I don't know. I'm fifty fifty. Oh on wow! It <laughs> you really get and to anybody. Someone. Anybody yeah. who likes monsters is a fine person. I just <laughs> yeah, that's an easy one for me. I definitely prefer Adam's family. And I guess this is should be put into context. Which one would you rather deal with? Okay. Okay. Zombie or vampire? Ah, are we talking singular or plural? Because the answers I, might change. Well, we, we were talking about this as we yeah. were writing it for you. And we, we said the same thing. And I said, I think we're going to say singular. So if it's singular, then zombie, because it's like, even if they're a fast zombie, I can deal with a zombie and you run away and, you know, <laughs> try and shoot them in the head and yeah. it should be yeah. okay. Vampires, you know, they're old and they're, you know, that's part of the scary thing about <laughs> vampires is they're smarter than you are because they've been around for 200 years or whatever. And I'm, and I'm not talking about twilight vampires where it's like, all we've got yeah. to show for hundreds of years is a luxurious house and apparently never ending horniness. Right. Not like real <laughs> vampires that like, I've been studying for 3,000 and years how to yes. destroy you you know that's yeah that's much scarier <laughs> but then we, then we, we're gonna get really deep here but then we started saying i said well you know if you knew if you knew you had to die by and i'm getting really like morbid here but if you knew you had to die by one of them i was like i think i would rather die by the vampire because yeah. the vampire is just gonna get your neck it's it's gonna be over pretty fast Whereas yeah. the zombie, oh, you're going to suffer. It's going to be terrible. Yeah. No, uh, either way, pass. Hard pass. <laughs> <laughs> Number three, I don't know if I'm saying this right, but Lestat. Lestat. Lestat mm -hmm. or Dracula? Oh, Dracula. So much Dracula. Really? I think, oh, yeah. I love, I, I recently, well, not re, I, I return and reread Bram Stoker's Dracula every couple of years. There's a, yeah. there's a magnificent audible, um, reading of it with tim curry is re it's a it's a cast reading and so tim curry is van helsing i think is it anne hathaway there's a bunch of big stars and it's amazing so <clears throat> excuse me i had to clear my throat there um okay, i'm gonna get this oh it's fantastic i hope it's like i have it it might have been one of those audible originals limited time i don't know but uh -huh. it was so good and you know i <clears throat> i remember reading the screenplay to, um, I don't even know what it's called. The vampire interview with the vampire. That's it. Thank you. Yeah. 
brain <laughs> fart from hell. Um, <laughs> I remember reading it because I was a script reader at Fox when it came out and so it was going around and everybody was excited about it and stuff. And um, just as an industry thing, it was really cool. And so I read it and I was like, this is a really captivating script. I read it really quickly. And then I read the book and, it, and I had the same response, which it was captivating. It was interesting. And I hated every second of it. Like there was no part of me that wanted to partake of that world, you know, and it might just be because it was painted oh, right. as such an ugly world, you know, whereas in, in Dracula and Bram Stoker's Dracula, there's this sense of good and evil and there's real good guys and real bad guys. And, and I also think Dracula doesn't ha get the love it deserves for the level of nuance and subtlety. Like I remember reading it as a kid and one of the most terrifying things being that the, the vampire has bitten someone and they've managed to save her through blood transfusions, hanging garlic, keeping the vampire away. And, and they're like, well, at least she's safe. We've got her. You know, we, we, we know how to protect her and we can keep doing this as long as we need. And Van Helsing turns to the people and is like, she's going to die someday. And, mm -hmm. and leaving it unsaid that whenever it is tomorrow or a, a hundred years, Dracula gets her. You know, and what a chilling thought. Like he got, sure. he bit her once and now he owns her. And it doesn't matter to him whether it's tomorrow or a hundred years, he gets her, ah. you know? And so the actual Dracula has so much cool stuff kind of going on underneath the surface. And so Interview with the Vampire, all of those books, and I've read several of them. They, they were well done. They had a lot of fascinating stuff. They did new things, which is always fun, you know, to see someone twist something in an interesting way. Yeah. But ultimately... It's sort of like um, Marvel movies versus the new DC movies. I love Superman. Superman's my favorite superhero. I love Batman. He's my number two. And most of the DC movies suck because they forget the most important thing about any comic book movie, which is at the end, you should want to be a superhero. Ah, Marvel movies get that. And, and yeah. DC movies don't. They've lost that joy. Like, oh, I'm going to be Superman and be a sad sack who mopes for the next six years. And nobody <laughs> wants that. You know, like, oh, what do you get out of being Superman? I don't know, a therapist building. And I feel really bad about everything. Um, <laughs> so I would participate in the uh, long story short. Obviously, I'm a writer who used to be a lawyer because I cannot not talk. Um, I would totally would put on a top hat and tails and dance a waltz in the vampire world of Bram Stoker's Dracula. And I have no desire to visit anything Anne Rice ever created. Wow, you may have changed my mind. I, I would <laughs> prefer Michael Brent Collings or Angelica Hart. Uh, don't care. I mean, here, here, Angelica Hart, for those who don't know, is a pen name I used for some romance books. And the only reason is there's a lot of women out there who won't read it if it's got a penis attached. And that's yeah. a weird thing for me. Um, but I get it. Like, I was kind of disheartened when my dad was like, oh, the Hardy Boys weren't really written by a man. You know, it was written by a corporation, probably mostly women. And I was like, really? That's not cool at all. <laughs> but I was like nine and I got over it. But some people don't. And so when I read wrote, when I started writing romance, I wrote as Angelica Hart. Um, but I had to stop because it was really hard. I was getting letters from like 40 year old divorcees being like, you're the only woman who understands. And I'm like, you are going to kill me. Like, find out you're just going to show up at my house and murder me. They will find my corpse all cut up and like, you know, parts of me mailed to different places because she's so upset. So I had to <laughs> stop that. It was just really draining emotionally. Probing question for last ketchup or mustard. Oh, my gosh. Mustard. I don't even <laughs> like ketchup. I have to. And yes, this is partly the mental health thing. But like if ketchup touches me, I have to wash my hands. It's so gross. Oh. Wow. <laughs> I'm that way about a lot of things, but yeah. I like my ketchup and mustard actually mixed. I like that mustard comes in many different varieties where ketchup is usually just ketchup. Ketchup. And see, yeah. I like the spicy mustards and the the uh great yeah, pecan in that she's straight yellow mustard yeah, like, yeah. Yellow that, and that's me i'm a yellow mustard yeah. guy but like mm -hmm. it's so funny because i'll go to a restaurant and you know less so now because i'm a threatening adult male but like as a kid <laughs> i go you know get my french fries and i'd say can i have some mustard and the waitresses or the servers would give me crap they're like why are you putting mustard on fries i'm like who are you why are you asking me this question <laughs> but i don't understand why it's okay to put like mashed up sugar tomato juice on a french fry but i can't put my mustard on a it was yeah. just always kind of weirded me out you know but i used to i used to mix them up when i was a little kid and i remember vividly 
mixing it up one day and then just my brain being like this shall not stand and i never touched <laughs> mustard or ketchup again i just literally it was an on off switch my brain's like do you realize what kind of heresy you're committing right now oh never again what does a life well lived mean to you i think a life well lived first of all has to involve other people and and not as playthings but as something you're trying to help I think one of the biggest problems today is everybody, not everybody, but one of my least favorite things to hear is I'm living my truth. Because what that often means is I am going to do things that I like regardless of the consequence to those around me. And I find that opprobrious. I've, there's not a lot of things I have like really harsh language about, but I find that kind of lifestyle disgusting. Because if you want to live on a desert island and never impact anybody else ever, live however you want, man. I don't care. But the reality is everything we do impacts other people. So a life well-lived is mindful of other people. And that doesn't mean you have to go out and be miserable. And I'm not talking easy answers. I'm just talking about like the fact that you really feel like you are this way or that way, or you really want this thing or that thing. And whatever you're thinking I'm talking about, you're probably wrong. I'm literally being general. I don't care what it is. No matter how important it is to you, if your only reason for doing it is it is important to me, irregardless of the impact on other people, shame on you. Mm -hmm. um, there are things that are so important, you must do it, even if they do hurt other people. So I'm not saying there's no times to do that, but I'm saying just thoughtless living of truth, I think, is one of the great maladies of today's uh, world. So I think a life well lived is mindful of other people, is careful with other people, and doesn't seek perfection. But, you know, if I could have on my tombstone, he wasn't perfect, but he got a little better every day, I would be overjoyed if, you know, and have it be true. Um because that's a real major accomplishment. You know, um, I talked to my, my kids, we're religious people and we believe in things like heaven and God and stuff. And, I, mm -hmm. and I'm like, you know what? I wonder sometimes if the last big test when we get to heaven is God's like, you did great. Um, you're here. I'm going to have Hitler show you around, you know, and, and the big test is going to be like, well, it turns out Hitler was genuinely crazy and not responsible for his actions. And so he was kind of a good person at heart who had this crippling mental health problem. And so I, God, decided because he wasn't in charge of any of that, he gets in heaven, you know, and and like I look at my kids and go, what are you going to do? Because I know a lot of people are like, oh, I'm not going to heaven if Hitler's in heaven, you know, <laughs> even though. Hitler heaven is totally different and is an awesome guy and has been working really hard behind the scenes to take care of the Holocaust and stuff, you know, like, and I, and I don't mean this to be offensive or lighthearted look. And I want to clarify Hitler sucked. Like I have nothing good to say about Hitler, but we don't know where people's internal situation is, you know? And I tell my kids, you can judge actions. You can say murder is evil. You know, you can say certain things are wrong and bad, but that's different than looking at the person who did it and saying they're evil because you don't know where they're coming from and you don't know what they're going through. Um, you know, I have real strong viewpoints about things like pornography and, and things like that, but they do not extend to the people who are in that industry because I don't know their situation. I don't know why they're there. I don't know what their thoughts are or why they're doing it. And I think a lot of the world's ills could be assisted if not cured if instead of vilifying the people who did it, we looked at the underlying causes, you know, mm -hmm. there's a big with Roe being overturned. There's, you know, the, the abortion debate is so huge. And my kids and I talk about that. And I always say, you know, rather than focus on whether abortion is a good thing or a bad thing or whether it's better to have that access or not, I'd like to look at the reasons women have abortions and see if I can help with that. Because most most women aren't like, you know what, I've always wanted an abortion. I've just, it's always been a dream of mine to get pregnant so I can have an abortion. Usually right. an abortion is a signal that some plan of some degree went awry. Maybe a small plan. I didn't intend to get pregnant with my husband whom I love and I'm in a, you know, relationship or whatever. And maybe it's a big, huge plan. I got raped last night, you yeah. know, violently assaulted. No matter what though, there's some 
something that didn't go right. And I'd rather see if I can reach out to people and be like, can I help you with that? Because, because I'd, I'd rather live in a world where abortion just isn't necessary than a world where abortion is litigated or, mm. or legal or illegal. Yeah. So I think, you know, it's a really long answer, but I guess a life well lived is trying your best to improve and, and bearing in mind that improvement isn't a solo career. Improvement is a group effort and group effort, not just helping me, but how do I help the group? Yeah. Um, the best thing about being a writer is the essence of art is the creation of community. And I, I think more people um, would have better lives if we tried to make communities instead of instead of winning arguments. I'd rather win a friend than a fight. And, and I think that that would make a better world. Yeah. As you were talking, I was thinking, yeah, community, like you, you, you contribute to your community. You try to make every single person helps to make the community better. And, and I also yeah. like when you said yeah. um, to be careful with each other. And I, I was just thinking what we talked about earlier, like if, if we just were really um, caring and, and Hey, how are really, how are you not? Hey, how are you doing? But really, yeah. how are you doing today? Like, yeah. how are you? And, and I just don't think we do that. And I don't think we're as gentle and careful with each other as we should be. Yeah. Yeah. So, yeah. This yes. was, this was so much different than I thought it was going to be. <laughs> I, mean, oh, yeah. I mean, I just love. Cause I didn't that. wear my fangs in my blood. And blood. <laughs> I haven't seen one bat fly. Never, no, no I, I bit all their heads off before the interview started. So. <laughs> I, we, I know that we're going to link to help everyone can get your books and all of that. But if, if someone's listening and they want to know, um, you know, how to get in touch with you, what's the best way? Um, honestly, the best way is probably just Google my first name. My first name is Michael Brent. Um, and it's all one word. And like I told you guys before the show started, I don't have a gold stick up my butt. It's just, there's like so many Michaels in my, my family. And this way I know who's yelling at me. Like if I get a call from Michael, I know it's a telemarketer. It's not like a real friend and I can just hang up on them. Um, so just Google my name and you'll get my Amazon page and my, you know, my website and my Facebook and all of that stuff. I'm the only Michael Brent in the world. Yeah. And we're going to link to a plethora of ways that they can get and get all of those and then your books and everything. But I, I mean, I cannot thank you enough for your time and for being here. And this was just lovely. I would love to have you I back. so fun. I would love it. You guys were awesome. I, I, you know, I genuinely enjoyed this and like, I like people, so it's not hard to make me genuinely enjoy it. But even for that, like you guys were awesome and I really enjoyed it. And you guys are lovely and, and have such a nice energy. And, and I, and I, you know, and I look through some of your shows and I listen to some of them before coming on and trying to do my homework. And I really mm -hmm. like, you guys seem like you're, you're trying to, you know, do what we talked about and trying to make some communities and some improvement. And I really respect that you're trying to like, you know, the fact that you're living a little bit simpler of a life that's a little more dialed in on important things rather than trying to have all of the things and not enjoy them. So I, I heartily appreciate that. And, and think you folks were awesome. Oh, oh no, likewise. And, and thank you. Comments like that are always good reinforcement. And, and I'll so just say this, this and... too, is that your authenticity, and I know that that word is thrown around a lot, but you, your authenticity and, and talking about all the things you talked about, I think is, is exactly how we contribute to a better community all around. Once again, I really, really enjoyed that episode and, uh, heck we can't stop talking about it. You know, it's, um, a lot of great things to take away from there. I, I didn't realize the superior quality the Adams family had over the monsters. Okay. I was going to say, <laughs> what did you think about his answer about the Adams family? Were you, you seemed a little like, Ooh, I thought the monsters would win that. Oh, I just, I think I kind of thought most people would kind of have them on the same level, but I do get that the Adams family has had, uh, a lot bigger of a enduring quality, I should say. They had the movie mm. thing going on over the years. So do you think in okay, that way? With that being yeah. said, do you think if there had been a few movies, some actors, you know, that people loved in with the monsters, that mm. it would have that endearing quality? Well, yeah, and I pitched monster family values to <laughs> and it just didn't. I guess they didn't think it would live up to the... maybe Michael Brent can get on it, but I'll tell you, he maybe. felt very strongly about the Adams family. So I he don't did. think that he would do it. 
<laughs> I don't think you would. I don't think at all, but I love strong opinions like that. I do too. Uh, well, look, similar yeah. similarly to Vampire Lestat and Dracula. I thought oh. for sure, <laughs> yeah. I thought for sure he was going to say Lestat. And in fact, he was not even a fan of Anne Rice's books. So it went, and, but you know what? We said this later that night. I was like, God, I think he, I think he really changed my mind. Oh, yeah. I know. Yeah, you did. And I was lost on the whole thing because I thought Lestat was a Canadian beer. So I really <laughs> had to catch up on that afterwards. But any, but yeah, he's just a real authentic guy. Very transparent. We just enjoyed the heck out of this. You know, we really did. Successes and accomplishments are wonderful. Running your own business. Everyone, you know, looks at, oh, my gosh, you're your own boss. We talked about this in the episode. It's not all sunshine and rainbows. And you you have a perception of how someone is going to be, how an episode's going to go. And it does, it bears off into a different direction. And this was in the most beautiful way. I think that it's, we talked about this in the intro that one of the reasons we love our guests and that they are sparks in our lives is that they are so, here's that word again, authentic about their challenges. And it makes them so relatable, so much more human. And I I just hope that you all understand and appreciate how amazing that is when someone opens up and talks about that. Because we did not know about any of, you know, the mental health struggles that he had before the episode. It was not even going to be a bullet point to talk about because we really did not know. Uh, no, we didn't, but it, it, it flowed along in a wonderful way. And I think that could be, you know, insightful to a lot of people. Yeah. yeah. And we just cannot thank Michael Brent enough for his openness. Thank you, Michael Brent. If this episode resonated with you, or if you know of someone who would benefit from anything we talked about today or any episode, our guests or anything, please share it with a friend. It's a great way of supporting the podcast and us, and we really appreciate it. Another way of supporting the pod is by leaving us a five-star reviewer rating on the platform you're listening to us on. Oh, and go ahead and hit that subscribe button because that also supports us. We would love that. You can always find us, links we refer to during the show, and any of the podcast sponsors at arneradventures.com or linked here in these show notes. And until next time, enjoy that journey you're on. We're wishing you lots of adventures. Adios. Arrivederci. Au revoir. Adios. Uh, sayonara. Alvida uh, Dos vidiniana.